Welcome to the Ad Nauseam Podcast, where classical gourmands everywhere can finally get their fill. Join us for a delectable discussion of Greco-Roman civilization stretching from the Minoans and Mycenaeans through the Renaissance and right down to the present. And now, ladies and gentlemen, here are your hosts, Dr. David Noe and Dr. Jeff Winkle. Welcome Ad Nauseam listeners to episode 31 of our little podcast. My name is Dr. David Noe. As always, I'm here with my co-host, Dr. Jeff Winkle. How are you, Jeff? I'm doing okay, except for this water glass you gave me. I find it a little emasculating. Really? So if the, if listeners the one have, with the uh, the yellow duckies on the side? Little duckies. There's there's little cats jumping around. I, I, I somehow feel this is kind of personal. Did you want a lid with that sippy cup? I did not want a lid. <laughs> the listeners think we're making this up. But no, it's, it, it's this true. is one of the... the actual true elements of life here in the vomitorium. <laughs> Maybe we'll put a picture in the show notes of this thing. Okay. It, it, this, is, this is brutal. All right. So today we are welcoming uh, Dr. Ed Watts from UC, the University of California, San Diego. Very exciting. Yes, he yes. wrote this fabulous work, uh, 2018, I think it came out, The Mortal Republic, Rome's a Decline. It's just a fabulous work. But before we get into that, we need to give a shout out, don't we? Yes, we're going to shout out uh, today to Donna Seedman. Who, I believe it's Seidman. Seidman, Donna Seidman, sorry about that, uh, who, like uh, uh, Professor Watts, is also a Californian, yeah. or is in California, Santa Clarita. Mm-hmm. And she is a Latin and logic teacher extraordinaria. Yes, amazing. We got the Donna part right. So, hopefully, <laughs> right. so hello, Donna. Thanks for being a loyal listener. Thanks for uh, interacting with us on Facebook and other places. Yes, Donna, I've got to meet you a little bit on Facebook, and that's been a pleasure. And, and um, I, I love the comments that you have to make. Yeah, yeah keep up the good fight out there teaching Latin. You're, you're doing a great work. So, Jeff, you have our opening quote, I believe, yes. from uh, Ed's book, Dr. Watts's book, The Mortal Republic. Right. And this is from uh, the, the introduction. Dr. Watts writes, No republic is, et- is eternal. It lives only as long as its citizens want it. And in both the 21st century AD and the 1st century BC, when a republic fails to work as intended, its citizens are capable of choosing the stability of autocratic rule over the chaos of a broken republic. When freedom leads to disorder and autocracy, promises a functional and responsive government, even citizens of an established republic can become willing to set aside long-standing, principled objections to the rule of one man and embrace its practical benefits. Rome offers a lesson about how citizens and leaders of a republic might avoid forcing their fellow citizens to make such a tortured choice. Mm, that's really good. That's uh, gripping prose. So citizens and leaders, how they can avoid such a choice as Rome had to make, and then eventually the Republic died. Yeah. So let's get right into it, and uh, let's welcome Dr. Ed Watts from California. Let's do it. Uh, so Ed, thank you so much for, for being willing to join us uh, today. We're really looking forward to uh, hearing more about uh, this book, Mortal Republic. We have lots of, of questions to ask you, and uh, let's 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 dive into it. Um, but uh, b- before we get into the kind of the, the uh, kind of the heart of the book, uh, I'm wondering if you'd be willing just to talk a little bit about yourself, kind of uh, do a brief biography. You know, uh, how you got into writing about Roman well, history. Well, I'm a, you know, who a classicist. I was trained as a classicist as an undergraduate. Uh, I became very interested in Roman history. Um, I think, like lots of us, through traveling to the city of Rome and. Uh, seeing all the things that were there and trying to understand their implications and their significance. When I got to college, I got connected with Joe Pucci, who's a wonderful late antique um, scholar of literature, and Susan Harvey, who's a wonderful scholar of late antique religion. And so I, I moved very quickly into late antiquity and particularly focusing on um, the, the off periods mm-hmm. of late antiquity. So, you know, if, if we're thinking about late antiquity, the fourth century is the 
the golden age of late antiquity. Um, and I became super interested in the fifth century. And so I did a lot of my initial work on the fifth century, trying to kind of piece together um, the robust textual sources that don't make it into the late antique literary canon. Um, things in Coptic, things in Syriac, um, weird philosophical texts that no one pays too much attention to. And what I found is that there's a, a tremendous set of things that one can do when you you follow your passions towards whatever texts and materials are particularly interesting to you. Um, and so my, my scholarly trajectory took me really into a project that spanned the second to the seventh centuries. Um, that was my dissertation work. And then my second book was a fifth century project, um, which I found super exciting. Uh, and then gradually I moved towards the Republic in part because I'd found that with my teaching in recent years, students had <clears throat> stopped thinking that the decline and fall of the Roman Empire in the late antique period was the most relevant part of antiquity for their experiences. Um, and when I started teaching, everyone <laughs> thought that the Republic was interesting, nice and interesting, yeah. but not any sort of thing that had immediate consequences to their world. And uh, right around you know the middle of the Obama administration, okay it became clear that this was starting to shift. And um, late antiquity was something that was like nice and interesting, but not relevant mm -hmm. in the way that it had been, say, um, in 2003, when you had um, Colin Murphy's book that came out that, that talked about okay. Are We Rome and the fall of Rome immediately being used as a way to try to understand uh, overextension in yeah. the military context. Um, all of a sudden, students were talking not about that, but they were talking about mm -hmm. the struggles uh, that the U.S. and other representative democracies were having with the basic concepts and rules of representative democracy. And um, noticing in my students this shift mm. from the republic being kind of cool but not relevant uh, to, you know, the republic being the thing in Roman history that was most relevant to their experiences pushed me to start thinking seriously about turning my writing to um, examining the story of the Republic uh, and trying to tell that story in a way that that was true to the events and true to the sources and, and true to the, the um, dynamics that I saw playing out, but also um, relevant as a tool to think about what was going on in our world now. Uh, and so in, in a way, you know, I, I, think that I was deeply influenced by the kinds of conversations that I was having with, you know, with the undergraduates who are all, as you know, always trying to figure out how to understand the world around them and always looking for tools that we can provide um, that don't right. sort of suggest exact parallels, but give them ways to think about the world that they're struggling to place themselves in and, and struggling to understand on its own terms. Um, and so that that's kind of the shift in, you know, in my work um, away from w working on um, what was very exciting when I was in graduate school and remains exciting to me. Um, but, you know, but I think in, in the student orientation, um, when uh -huh. I was a student, this late antiquity was what was immediate questions of, of religion, questions of imperial extension, questions right, of yeah. um, changing political dynamics. 
And, uh, and so the works that influenced me greatly as an undergraduate are things like Peter Brown's World of Late Antiquity, um, his article on the holy man in, in late antique society, mm-hmm. yeah. um, you know, some of Garth Foden's work, um, his early work looking at holiness mm-hmm. and um, the structure of, mm-hmm. you know, pagan philosophical holy men. Um, and I still love that work, right. but in a way it feels like that work was, was really wonderful and evocative in the 1990s. Uh, in a way that I think is, is less true now because the world we're living in has huh. changed. Uh, and so I don't know that that work would resonate with my sure, undergraduates yeah. in the way that it did with me simply because their concerns and the things that animate their interest in antiquity are so different from, you know, what, what made me excited about it. Hmm. Right. Well, the, the million dollar question that we're going to ask maybe near the end of the episode is, uh, are we living through the same kind of an era? Because we get these questions all the time, (laughs) as I'm sure you do. So we can delay that for a little bit, but a prior question is, do you get to choose uh, your own titles for these works? <laughs> so, that, so Mortal Republic, I did choose. Okay. Um, uh, it's a brilliant title. Yeah, I, lo- I saw that and I thought, yeah, I that's mean, a great because title. for me, the real title. thing, yeah, I mean, the one that. message yeah. and one sentence that I that I wanted people to take away from that is republics are things. I mean, Cicero says this, right? It's not my idea. Um, Cicero says that a republic can last forever if you let it. Um, Mm -hmm. But a republic can die. And the death of a republic Mm -hmm. is something that Cicero says is even more tragic than the death of a person. Because a person by necessity dies. A republic doesn't need to die. Uh, And so Mm -hmm. when it dies, there are a set of consequential choices, Mm -hmm. decisions, and actions that the people living in that republic took that allowed it to die. It reminds me of that uh, Ben Franklin quote that, or that's attributed to him that if somebody asks him, well, what have we, yeah. we got here, Mr. Franklin? And he says, a republic, if you can keep yeah, it. Yeah, I mean, I think right? that's what's it's, so interesting is the founding fathers obviously yeah. knew Roman political theory quite well. I mean, a lot of them knew it through Montesquieu, but, um, but they mm-hmm. did know it quite well. But they didn't know Cicero's Republic. Right. And so Franklin had never seen that passage, at least I, I don't, unless he had read it, mm. you know, he might have read it through Augustine's mm, really? City of God. I don't remember if it's in there. Um, but the actual text of Cicero's Republic isn't found until the early 19th century. Uh, and so, so Franklin likely had not seen that. In, mm. And yet um, the idea is something that is sort of pervasive, Um and, you know, and I think Cicero's insight mm-hmm. there is, you know, both spectacular, but also in a way natural. Because political institutions are made up of the wills and ideas of a vast number of people and their different motivations and priorities, yeah. uh, as opposed to an individual's life. Yeah, so The Final Pagan Generation, also another great title, and we're not talking about that today, but it's interesting as you describe how your interests shifted backward chronologically to the Republic. And um, one of the questions we wanted to ask is, in the writing of Roman history, when we were both in grad school, we were taught to some extent that none of these men had noble motives that they were all completely self-interested. 
you know, Cicero kind of reached mm-hmm. his low point in the 19th century with Theodore Mommsen, and uh, we have all of his correspondence, so we see him at his worst. Uh, as you were writing this book, did you have times when you thought, now here's a, a noble motive, an unselfish interest, or is um, it all just competition for power? That's a really wonderful question, because I think you do see in you know, the earliest stages of the Republic with people like Fabricius. I mean, you do see people who I think do have noble motives, but it's also, you know, when you're talking about events in the 280s, you're right on that border where, you, you know, you still have the kind of mythologizing of the Roman past that, do, that dominates like our stories about the fifth century BC, right? I mean, guys like Ahala in Cincinnatus who are just bouncing around. Mm-hmm. The, I mean, are they real at all is a legitimate question. Um, and, you know, and I think when you're getting mm-hmm. into the discussion of the Pyrrhic Wars, you're like right at that border um, where I think you do have real people, but I don't know if you have real motivations. I think as you get into the second century and the first century BC, it gets harder because these are real people and they're complicated. Um, I think, you know, there are moments where you can look at some of these people and say, these actually are principles that these people um, adhere to, even if there's negative consequences for them. I mean, I think Caesar is a great example of that, where um, a lot of what Caesar does is reprehensible. Uh, the, the ambition, the accumulation of power, the willingness to use um, intimidation tactics. I think all of this stuff is really, really, really problematic. But I think there mm-hmm. is, yeah, and that's not it's not even right. mentioning what he did. But at I all, think there is right? a principle that's just within that the is context genuinely of cesarean that I think is something that is really respectable. Um, you know, Caesar was on the other side of Sulla's his um, persecutions, and Caesar knew what it looks like when somebody wins a civil war and takes mm-hmm. the decision to destroy their enemies. And, you know, actually destroy their enemies. And I think as a basic, mm. a basic principle, Caesar did not agree with that. I mean, we see this in the speeches about Catiline, um, where Caesar, I think, really is mm-hmm. saying um, what Sallust yes. and what Cicero sort of suggest he's saying. You know, we cannot take the lives of our fellow citizens. We just cannot do that. We definitely cannot do it without trial. And I think that Caesar's clemency mm. grows out of that same impulse. Uh, and I think he probably he wasn't a stupid man. I think he understood that there was a real risk in taking that step. But it wasn't a Rome he wanted to live in um, where these kinds of steps were not taken. Uh, and, you know, and mm. so I think there are moments where you see people behaving that right. way, um, where you do see principle. But I think it's really hard to see them following through. Hmm. Um, and Brutus is the perfect example of that. Where, you know, right. Brutus is really struggling with what the principle <laughs> of liberty is. Um, and in the 50s, it means one thing. It means, you know, um, mm. Brutus, the founder of the Republic, and Ahala, right? Uh, in the 40s, it means something a little bit different. And then when he is mm-hmm. arming to fight the Civil War, it means basically sacking cities and stealing property and, you know, doing things that no one would say are principled behaviors. Um, right. Hmm. So to return to Caesar for a moment, uh, his famous Clementia after the war, you wouldn't then interpret that 
as purely self-suffering. So he's not forgiving his enemies in order to um, I, you know, I them put a lot of stock interests. in what Caesar was saying in 63. Um, because I think that is intellectually consistent with what okay. he's doing in the 40s. Um, otherwise, you know, if, if we didn't see how he responded to, to Catalan, I think that what you're saying would, would add up. I mean, I think it, I, I would incline towards that. But the fact that we have Caesar's taking a principled stand when he's, I mean, he's mm-hmm. not nobody, but he's not who he will become. Um, and it's actually a great cost to himself to do that in 63. That's um, a good point. I mean, he, he almost gets arrested because of it. Uh, hmm. And so I think there is a principle there that, that sort of right. continues through Caesar's entire career. And I think he always understood that there was a cost to that. Um, but the principle mattered enough to him that he was willing to absorb that cost. In, in um, kind of your telling of, of the story, um, I mean, I certainly got a sense of you know the, the death of the republic is a is a death by a thousand cuts. But um, you know, in talking about Caesar, I, one of the questions that that I I jotted down was was there any was there a moment where you thought you know if such and such a person had done blank this whole thing could have turned around. Was there a moment where um, before, you know, Caesar, uh, it, it all kind of steamrolls into, you know, ambition and perpetual dictatorship. Was there something Caesar could have done that could have righted the ship or somebody else? <laughs> you mean a Rubicon moment? Is that what you're looking for? Is that, I, I think um, <laughs> by Caesar, I think it's, it's, it's over. I mean, it's a question of when, but, it, but it's over. Um, I think that, I mean, again, I, I don't like Cicero as a person. Um, I know that I'm, yeah, I don't like him as a person. <laughs> and actually, you know, that even as a Latin stylist, <laughs> I don't like him. I like Sallust a lot more. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. Oh, <laughs> You're but, talking to but a Ciceronian over here. Insights are incredibly <laughs> precise and profound. And, and I think when he takes the Republic and he situates this as a discussion mm. of, of Scipio Milianus, he's right. I mean, that, that is that is a moment where um, what Cicero dramatically stages mm. in the Republic is a moment that I think could have, under the right circumstances, with the right people, um, stabilized things. I mean, it would have taken a long time to undo the damage that Tiberius Gracchus had done, hmm. but I think it was still possible. Um, and then I think Cicero's right to think that, you know, I, I think that hmm. the moment he chooses is the moment where you really could say there are choices that people could have made. There are things that people could have done. Um, and, and there are ways that this could have worked where you wouldn't have ended up with the first century that you got. Um, but I think by the time you get to Marius, you know, even actually by the time mm-hmm. you're in the 110s and you have this, this sort of quasi oligarchy with the Caecilius Metelli and, um, you know, and these other dynastic families that have kind of clamped down on running the state after the death of Gaius Gracchus, I think it's already too late. Um, but I think in the 130s, it was not yet too late. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and I think Cicero may, I mean, I don't, I think it's really hard to recover Scipio Emilianus. Um, you to actually get a sense of who he was and what he was actually capable of doing and, and how much insight he had into the dynamics of that moment. Um, but right. Cicero, I think Cicero found a moment and I think he found a person and I think it's plausible. 
you know, what he sets out as a dramatic event that could have changed Roman history, I think is, is a plausible moment to have chosen. And the people he chooses to have sort of this discussion um, are the plausible people who could have made a difference and made a shift in how things worked. Yeah, so David, I, I will say that, uh, you know, there there's a lot about Cicero that I, I will not praise, but I think Cicero's insight as a historian and as a thinker is incredible. It's incredibly profound. And um, and I think a lot of what he's saying hmm. is right. <laughs> now, that's a compliment I've never heard paid to Cicero. So I like that. And I'm, I'm going to think about that carefully in the next uh, months and years. Uh, to go back to Caesar for a second, you say by his lifetime, it's inevitable. So do you then subscribe to the notion that I've often heard from other Roman historians that it's just a question of who's going to become the absolute ruler, the the potentator autocrat, and Caesar's distinguished because he managed to rise to the top of the heap, and someone else, maybe Brutus, maybe another one of the families, I actually would have think taken that over. The most likely outcome was that Rome was going to lose its empire, and everything was going to sort of spin off into separate entities. Um, I, I I think that this is what you see. Um, you know, I mean, it's it's what you see with Sulla. Where you know Spain spins off and it's it's you know basically operating independently. It even happens with Caesar, right? Caesar never actually controlled all of Rome's territory. The sons of Pompey controlled territory that that didn't actually get reabsorbed until the Second Triumvirate. Um, right. Even Augustus, you know, it took a very long time for him to actually consolidate authority over all of Rome's territory. And I think that what we miss in that is Augustus is both. Um, incredibly ruthless, incredibly talented, um, and also incredibly young. And that's why this all manages to come together is because you have somebody who's willing to do, I mean, his principles are, I want to survive. There's, there's no cesarean sense of, I want to do the right thing, or I want to protect rights, or mm-hmm. there's a conceptual understanding of what citizens are and what a state does to citizens. Augustus shares none of those things with Caesar. Uh, and so Augustus is willing to do whatever it takes to survive under the mm. terms that he sets. Uh, and he's also young enough that he can set terms that will then, as Tacitus says, get fixed um, because nobody remembers anything else. But if we think about how unlikely those right. circumstances are, I mean, mm. those are the circumstances that make the Roman Empire possible. And if we think about how unlikely those circumstances are. Um, I think that the Republic as a representative democracy that controlled all of the territory that Rome controlled from the center could not have survived the first century. But I think it's not actually the most likely outcome that it becomes the Roman Empire. Jeff, did you have a question follow up there? I wondered, Ed, what you make of, um, I think this just kind of builds on what you were saying, just kind of the the death of the Republic, not so much... um, because you know the people themselves couldn't keep it, or um, the kind of the, just the gradual turning away from Republican principles, but more that just it was a it was kind of a matter of geography. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, it's been a long time since I've taught um, like how Roman voting, but it was it was cumbersome. It was difficult. Um, it was I think very open to vulnerable to corruption. Because could you say that the you know the operation of the Republic was just too clunky, too slow? Um, and that it uh, the only way to do this is through a kind of tyranny. Yeah, I to, think that to keep it together um, is through a tyranny. I think when we look at the 140s, you know, I, I think that that's actually, you know, we, we talk, I, I said earlier that I think there is a moment in the 130s where you could have undone the damage of, of 
Tiberius Gracchus, in the 140s, you could have prevented it. And I think one of the struggles that the Republic faces in the 140s is you have this accumulation of massive amounts of wealth that is growing very rapidly at a time when most other Romans are sort of stagnating. And, um, and this is, this is Philip Kay's, I think, brilliant insight, uh, in the way that the Roman economy is functioning in the second century. But the, uh, the challenge that the Republic faces is those people have their money legally for the most part, right? I mean, these people who are getting very wealthy, their money is legally theirs. Um, and so one of the challenges a Republic faces, and Cicero again is, is a great source for this. One of the challenges a Republic faces is it has to, uh, protect law. But it also has to protect the common good. And it's clear that there's an imbalance there where legally these people have a lot of money and they, they are entitled to that money by law. But it's not in accordance with the common good that they have this much money. And so the challenge the Republic faces is how do you how do you do both of those things? Or what do you do with these people who have this much money, but it's not pursuing the common good? What is the compromise that recognizes their legal right to their wealth? But also uh, ameliorate some of the problems to the you know the common good of the republic and the people living in it that this much accumulated wealth causes. And in the 140s, the failure that the republic has is it can't come up with a way to do that. Um, and what you eventually get um, is hmm. tensions that boil over because people exploit these tensions. So I, I think that this this sort of fundamental problem between what people legally have acquired and what's good for the society is in a way the root of the fundamental questions that you have that you know when we talk about the optimates and the populares right i don't really like that conflict as a, a sort of binary because i think it's much more right. complicated but that's the basic you know philosophical question between those those outlooks um you could have headed all of that off if the republic had been more effective in the 140s when everybody still had faith in it doing it um, and the voting system in the 140s would have enabled you to do that if you could have found the correct um, and appropriate compromise and everybody understood the necessity for it. So that seems to be mentioning a more of a technical question then. What's the technical mechanism for the very wealthy to legally hold their wealth but not let the inequality be some, become so great that there's no more a sense of public duty? Um, so I wonder the interplay between a, a technical answer to that yeah. question and more of what has to do with the customs and traditions. Yeah, I mean, it's so a very that's not the best dichotomy. Um, but I think I mean, you know it, what I'm And it's the, the idea of a society hmm. that's governed by law has to have popular buy-in. It has to have, it has to regularly check back with its citizens to be sure that they're comfortable with what's happening. And in Athenian democracy, this was done every year, right? You would have a kind of meeting in the assembly where everybody would say, okay, we're good with what has happened in the past year. Let's move forward on that basis. And presumably you could vote and say, no, we're not good with what happened. And like, we need a, re we need a reset. Um, and in Rome, there wasn't exactly that act, but the fact that mm -hmm. you would have the consuls come out and justify their behavior every year. Um, and this would then be sort of approved in the, in the assembly was a similar ceremonial step. And so I, I think that that really is that really is the fundamental challenge that the Republic faced in the 140s is, is, you know, this practical one of as you get more citizens, the Republic still has to represent them. And um, and in, you know, and especially in the second century, what do you do with Italians who are governed by these laws 
make a lot of money on the basis of these laws, rent land from, you know, from the uh, republic itself, but don't have a say in what's happening. Uh, they have to work through intermediaries. And, you know, and that's, of course, what leads to the social mm. war. But I think all of these problems could have been headed off. Uh, potentially. Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, and I think if Romans understood what was at stake in the 140s, they would have been headed off. I don't think they got quite what um, these tensions would mean in the long term. Um, but of course, we can understand that because mm -hmm. the social, you know, the um, conflict right. of the orders had ended almost 150 years before that. There hadn't been political violence really since like, I mean, if we trust it, the mid fifth century BC according to our narratives, like, why would you in the 140s think, well, this is a crisis? Mm -hmm. uh, and like, nobody's in the streets, nobody's rioting, there's no violence, but this is a crisis. Uh, and it's a crisis that could, you know, if we don't figure it out, it's a crisis that will make people mm -hmm. so angry that people will start trying to exploit it for their own benefits. <laughs> so on page 65 of the text, I don't expect you to remember the actual page, but I'll give you a little quote. You're talking about Marcus Crassus who's been always to me a fascinating figure. And uh, I don't know which of the primary sources says that Caesar was the most talented man in Rome. Uh, Crassus was the richest and Pompey was the handsomest, which doesn't seem to me the case at all based on the, he's got, he's got a nice haircut, but, uh, but you say about Crassus on uh, 65, rapid wealth creation like that experienced by Romans in the first half of the second century so for our listeners, you know, 100 to 50 BC or BCE can be profoundly destabilizing to a social order that relies upon elite political competition. Akin to the quests for Atlantis and El Dorado, the search for the perfect cup of coffee also seems never ending. No longer. It has ended. Ad nauseanators, your attention please. Mark Helweg and his Portland-based crew at Racial Coffee have done it. Why throw your cash down the drain at the overpriced downtown trendy pants brew and beanery when the sleek machines, the Racial 6, and its slightly wiser mentor, the 8, can deliver this experience in your own kitchen? Indeed. I love my 6. Every morning I hit the button, watch as the effervescence of the bloom stage banishes all the java-jilting CO2 to the farthest corners of Tartarus, setting up a 200-degree Fahrenheit shower of water through my favorite blend, coming to rest in a mirrored-sheened stainless steel carafe that I'm fairly sure could contain plutonium if called upon. The whole spectacle is like a really cool experiment that will make you wish you had paid more attention in high school chemistry class. Oh, that's amazing. <laughs> wow. But here's the best part. Listeners, right now, you can go to ratiocoffee.com, R-A-T-I-O, we trust you can spell coffee, and get a 15%, 15% exclusive discount on the Ratio 6. Enter special code ANCO for 15% off the Ratio 6. Who knew? It's true. You can bring the brew home to you. This episode of Ad Nauseam is brought to you in part by Hackett Publishing, an independent publisher since 1972. Hackett brings the best of classics and humanities to a wide audience with affordable, attractive offerings. Now, Dave, I know you like to read philosophy all the time, but what does Hackett have in this vein? Oh, that vein is rich, Jeff, and extends for miles. There's gold in them, their hills. Hackett has a new series of Aristotle translations from CDC Reeve called The New Hackett Aristotle. Who wouldn't like to hack at some Aristotle? I'm up for that. I'm really looking forward to this. The series will eventually include new translations of all of Aristotle's works. 
Excellent. Hackett has titles on Ancient Rome 2 with translations of Suetonius, Livy, and more. That's right, Jeff. Can you set up our posse for some savings? I can. AN crew, my homies. Right now you can save 20%. Did you just say my homies? I, 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 I claim nothing. You just follow the script. Is that right? <laughs> My peeps, right now you can save 20% on any order and receive free shipping from Hackett Publishing. That's right. All you have to do is go to hackettpublishing.com, Hackett, H-A-C-K-E-T-T, publishing. Find the text you want. Enter AN2021 in the box, which asks for the coupon code. Don't hesitate. Check out hackettpublishing.com today. Today's episode is also brought to you by the good people at Ad Astra Coffee Roasters of Hillsdale, Michigan. To the stars with great coffee. Now, Dave, Patrick, and his crew, they are in south-central Michigan. They really know how to roast those beans. That's right, Jeff. The poetry series featuring Wallace Stevens, Rainer Maria Rilke, and William Wordsworth, plus the Las Lajas Microlot and my favorite, Tenebris. These are extraordinary blends. They also have a new poetry series in blue. It's from Guatemala. It's called Huehuetenango. What was that? Huehuetenango. That sounds very interesting. Thank you. <laughs> That's right. Listeners, if you haven't checked out their website, you should just take a look. It explains how they use an old-fashioned method of roasting with a giant repurposed roaster and explains where they source these beans. It's a really well-done presentation. Right, and they also only roast coffee that ranks 84 or higher on the 100-point coffee grading scale. That's really really good, right? It is pretty good, yeah. Yeah. Can you tell our... uh, our loyal listeners, how to score some Odd Astra coffee beans? I certainly can. So, AN friends, go to oddastraroasters.com, oddastra, A D A S T R A, roasters.com, and check out some of their delicious offerings. You get a special 10% off by entering code ANAA, and you can also sign up for their monthly subscriptions. Check it out. Do it. Uh, so if you could just say a little bit more about the the person of Marcus Crassus and how he plays into the dissolution of public interest, especially his wealth. Yeah, I think that it's fascinating when we when we read like Plutarch's description of how Crassus accumulates his wealth. Um, and you have these stories about how Crassus, um, you know, he's, he's doing what a lot of these guys are doing and he's buying and selling loans. He's involved in, um, you know, sort of shadow commercial transactions, even though he's not allowed to be a merchant. Um, there's ways to back merchant mm. activity. Uh, and Cato actually figured this out in the second century BC. There's ways as a senator to to basically be financially benefiting from commercial activity when you don't actually engage in it yourself um, by fronting money to people, um, by then selling the uh, you know selling the potential profits from the merchant activity, recapitalizing and fronting more money to people. So Crassus is doing all of these things. But another thing that Crassus really gets is that the city of Rome is growing in a way that is completely unplanned. Um, it's it's absolutely stretching past any of the infrastructure that the city and the republic has created. Um, you know, I, I think when we estimate, I can't remember who does this, but um, you know, when we look at the great mm-hmm. republican era infrastructure projects, we see things like the Aqua Martia. Um, things that are occurring in being built in the first half of the second century BC. And uh, that was a city that was growing towards 250,000 people. By the time of Crassus, you're pushing a million. And the infrastructure just isn't there. And what Crassus realizes is, um, you know, there's a way to benefit financially from, in essence, sort of privatizing some of the infrastructure mm-hmm. uh, and some of the, the housing. Um 
and doing it on the cheap. And so Crassus does sort of property flipping. He has a whole I team heard of that. engineers yeah. and architects. I like and, to tell my students um, even story. as a fire company that will <laughs> like put out property that's on fire. Yeah, and and you know, and what Crassus has kind of done is he's he's understood that there is a kind of planning failure that opens things up hmm. um, for private exploitation because the public sector is just not interested or not capable. Um, and so, and so, what ends up happening is people like Crassus, who understand these dynamics, can become spectacularly wealthy, because all of a sudden you're in a dynamic economy. And this is what this is what Kay's book shows really impressively. Right. Um, this for years, you know, when I was in graduate school, and I'm sure when you guys were in graduate school, the received wisdom was the Roman economy. No ancient economy grew. You know, it, it mm-hmm. grew basically very slowly, and it primarily grew when people put more land under cultivation. Um, and that just is not true. Uh, right. it, it just can't be true, given what we know about some of the sums that are involved, um, given what we know about some of the, I mean, in the imperial period, things like Trajan's Alimentus scheme. This is all working off of a financial arrangement. Right. It's working off of um, the assumption of a very strong financial system. Um, that's robust and sophisticated. But right. as we know in our society, right. <laughs> you get how that works. You can become spectacularly wealthy, but most people don't get how it works. Hmm. Um, and some of the people who really don't get how it works are old money rich people. Um, and that's the that's the fund, one of the fundamental problems that, uh, that Crassus and others are confronting, where you have old established families that cannot compete with people like Crassus because they just don't have the wealth to do it. Um, and the, the initial push that you see in the second century when this is all starting up, you know, is sure. to just put in sumptuary laws. Um, but that goes away relatively quickly. And then the, the state really struggles to figure out how you balance the hereditary prerogatives of some of these old money families with the, um, dynamism and sure. um, economic uh, creativity of people like And Crassus. sumptuary laws don't have anything to do with the production of wealth, but only the uh, public consumption. And so it doesn't really address the root problem, it seems to me. Especially when people like Crassus are becoming so spectacularly wealthy. I mean, the sumptuary laws are even, they're even struggling to constrain someone like Scipio Africanus. And Crassus is 60 times as wealthy as Scipio. So just for the sake of our listeners who are all on the same page, a sumptuary law is a rule that limits the amount of public display of wealth. So the wearing of jewelry and things like that. Correct me if I'm wrong, Ed. Uh, the kinds of banquets and parties you can throw. So it's meant to keep the inequalities of wealth out of the public eye. And it's super important in a Republican system where what you basically have is a, a system um, where magistrates are elected to represent the will of voters and to execute the, the um, ideas of these voters. And so because um, those are representative democracies, the competition is incredibly fierce to be one of those representatives, especially at the highest levels. And so somebody with a lot of wealth can basically, I mean, as we know in our society, can kind of put their thumb on the scale and attract a lot more attention mm-hmm. to themselves. And they then become harder to defeat in an electoral context. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, and that's what's really, that's what's really a challenge to these old families. Um, because the Roman hereditary aristocracy expected that each generation they're going to hold prominent offices because it's kind of, in their view, their prerogative, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> these are offices that, that shift between uh, a few, you know, wealthy patrician families. And all of a sudden there are these people who are tens and hundreds of times as wealthy as these old families uh, and the old families can't compete. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so the sumptuary laws are a way to kind of level the competition artificially. Uh, but of course, they fail when you have someone like Crassus, who is just so wealthy and has so much capacity to use that wealth um, deliberately to create influence for mm-hmm. himself, both as a person running for office, but then also as basically pro- providing financing to a coalition of people who will be dependent upon him and will look out for his interests. Mm. So was Crassus behind Catiline, as the story goes? Is that just a, you just take that as a given? <laughs> I don't, okay. actually. So, Ed, uh, just to follow up on that, um, I wonder, uh, do you see as Caesar's um, recognizing things in this regard that Crassus did not? Um, uh, you, you talk a lot in your book about uh, kind of Caesar's skill as a politician. And when you were talking about you know, Crassus taking advantage of uh, Rome kind of growing without a plan. Uh, you know, Caesar comes back from Alexandria. You know, and when you know at the time of his of his assassination, seems to have plans for you know turning Rome into something closer to Alexandria. You know, he bequeaths this money to um, the people in his in his will. Yeah. Is that are we seeing a Caesar kind of um, tackling those things that uh, uh, in a way in a more kind of popular way in, uh, that Crassus did for more personal gain? I think that that's certain. That's definitely true. I mean, I think there's actually a couple moments that we could point to Mm -hmm. where you see politicians in the very late phases of this making um, making a bet that doing these things publicly will actually enhance their prestige greatly. I mean, Caesar is is a good example of this. And I think the one of the genius things that Caesar does is is leave his estates, leave his gardens to the public in his will. Um, I think that is well, we. I think in some in some cases we understate the significance of that as a gesture to people in Rome, um, in a city that is again growing in an unplanned way, growing really quickly. It's disgusting. It's smelly. Um, there's not a lot of open space, and Caesar understood this as a gesture that would secure his legacy. Um, and so I think that that's brilliant. I think a, a forward-looking step is when you see Agrippa start building up things like aqueducts and other public infrastructure in the lead-up to the war with Antony. Um, you know, I think we need to see that alongside the Oath of All Italy as, uh, you know, as a concerted campaign to say that Octavian's regime yeah. and Octavian's allies are providing things for Romans that the Republic was incapable of doing, <laughs> but Antony was not interested in doing and so I think that you, you're seeing in that a way of kind of structuring right. and, and laying the groundwork for the step that Octavian is eventually going to have to take when his triumphal powers expire. Um, he needs to make people understand that there is a future that is more um, organized and more responsive than what the past has been, and even more organized and responsive than what Caesar had, had been doing. Um, and so I, I think that this, 
I think we do, I mean, public infrastructure is boring. That's why the Republic didn't want to build it. And it takes a long time to do. And that's why none of these magistrates wanted to do it because they would start it and someone else would finish it. Um, and as you get into a city the size of what Rome was in the first century, even censors wouldn't have been able to complete a lot of the infrastructure work that was essential. Um, so there's nothing glamorous about bridges and bypasses and uh, way stations and things like that. There is if you can finish it, right? Okay. There is if you can finish it. <laughs> and put your name uh, over the portico. Right? Yeah. I mean, for, you know, Fabricius, you know, that's a, short, that's a small bridge, right? You could finish that. Right. But, uh, <laughs> um, but the, the Aqua Martia, um, you know, some of these things that come out in the second century, they are responsive to the growing city. Um, but the city is small enough that some of these things can be finished in such a way that you do get to stick your name on it. Um, but when you get into a city of the size of Rome, I mean, a city that, um, at least we're always taught is the biggest city the world had ever seen. No one mm -hmm. knew how to build the infrastructure for a city like that. Um, mm -hmm. and so there's going to be stuff that fails. <laughs> there's going to be stuff that takes a long time to build. Um, there's, there's going to be stuff that if you're working as a magistrate, you are going to struggle to get it done in the amount of time you have. Uh, and so when you get into the first century, you do see sort of private things like the theater of Pompey um, that are constructed privately, not through kind of a magistrate on an annual basis, but in, in, in some other capacity. Um, but the Republic really fails dramatically in hmm. doing the kind of infrastructure work that the city needs. Hmm. And, and did you happen? Did you happen to watch uh, HBO's Rome? <laughs> Yes. <laughs> well, I, I thought one thing, you know, it, it covers, you know, uh, a lot of the same era, right? Um, but I thought one thing that did very well was of uh, getting at the disgustingness of Rome. I mean, something that, you know, that Hollywood uh, often misses, you know, portraying as this, this uh, gleaming city of, of, of marble from, from one end to the other. Yeah. But I thought it did a good job of kind of showing kind of the back streets of Rome as being just, just, just god awful. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think. <laughs> We could only really understand that if we could somehow convey smell <laughs> exactly. and noise, right, right, right. you know, I mean, it's, there's a reason these houses are all built facing inside. Um, there, there's a reason why these walls are so thick. There's a, you know, all of these things that, that we kind of take for granted almost, especially those of us who spend our lives, you know, looking through things that are Roman. Um, right. We don't know that smell. I think that's the thing that, that, that we miss, like this very just sort of vile and visceral experience of being out in a city like that. Yeah. Um, there's, you know, there's a reason why everybody has incense in every room in their house. There, all of these things that, um, you know, that, that we kind of know, but we don't put together. Uh, the first time I visited Rome was 2004, and I was prepared for the marble city of uh, Augustus, and I was pretty disappointed. <laughs> <laughs> Never disappointed in Cicero's prose, but I was disappointed in the 2004 experience of Rome. I've learned to love it since, but you know, it's, it's com a comparison to what we we're talking about. No, I think that the only way that we could even get close to it is if, if we were there during a garbage strike when a, when a sewer <laughs> broke. 
Right. <laughs> I think that's that's the smell we would have to imagine. Um, and and so when you have something like Caesar's Gardens that are available to regular people, I mean, rich people could build their houses and build their their walls and go to the countryside and in the summer when it really smelled really badly. Um, and when there isn't rain and there isn't sort of water flowing to wash some of this stuff away, but poor people couldn't, regular people couldn't. Um, and you know, and so having something like Caesar's gardens, really hard for, for us to appreciate what that probably meant to regular Romans who didn't get a respite from this ever. You know, never mm. got quiet, never got greenery, never got a freedom from this smell. Um, they had no Tusculan villa they could escape to on the weekend, like Cicero. Right. So we're uh, we're kind of on the downslope here, and we should probably get to your I think your million dollar question that you started. Well, with. there's something before that I wanted to ask. Okay, please. So you know, I'm trained as a philosopher, mostly uh, rhetoric, some theology, but like a generalist, I teach Roman history from time to time, try to stay close to the texts and so forth. I always have this nagging feeling I'm doing something wrong in terms of the accuracy of what I present to my students. So now that we have a bona fide expert, uh, just a, a question, I try to present to my students the profound conservatism of Roman society, that it's, it's so conservative that even those persons today who consider themselves conservative or traditionalist uh, would not match up well with a Roman sense of conservatism. The, the joint executive, you know, to veto pretty much any new legislation, the antagonism inherent in terms like race, no why, you know, anything mm-hmm. new is therefore to be suspected and it's probably wrong. In the general amphitheater here or am I off in some of these descriptions? One of the things I'm really struggling conceptually with right now is how we come to terms with this day-to-day, not only conservatism, but disrespect for the basic humanity of of people Hmm. with this kind of long-term way that the Romans think about people and inclusion. You know, like, I mean, Roman slavery is a, a perfect example of this. It's a horrible institution. It, you know, people... People really are. I mean, they are treated as property, but they're treated as dispensable property. They're treated as property that can be destroyed for fun. And yet, in the long term, Roman slaves get integrated into Roman society. They get full Roman citizenship. They, um, Their children can become really prominent people in Rome. They can become ultimately even, you know, rising through like the levels of like the equestrian rank and even into the Senate. And there's no... There's no explicit political stigma on that descent. How do we come to terms with that? Right? How do we come mm-hmm. to terms with an ancient society that is so brutal to slaves in some contexts and in the short term is horrible in its very conception of their humanity, but in the long term takes this other view that is inclusive and, and, and incorporates them and integrates them and gives them real meaningful roles in society? And I think the question of conservatism is is related to that. In the short term, in the day-to-day, this is an incredibly conservative society. It does not mm-hmm. want to move fast. It's designed to not do that. But then if you look at the constitutional history of the republic, what you have when the republic is set up is a counter-revolution. It's an oligarchic counter-revolution to what Servius mm-hmm. Tullius had created. Um, and yet... All of the principles that animated that counter-revolution are eventually undone. 
And they're undone yeah. peacefully through compromise and through deliberation. I mean, this isn't Cyrene, where you have this aggressive kind of bouncing back and forth between very liberal constitutional structures and very conservative ones. And there's always violence that, you know, that um, separates the shift between those those poles. In Rome, the long-term story is a society that is actually um, willing to evolve and willing to incorporate and willing to expand itself. But on the day-to-day, you're right. It is incredibly conservative. And that is something, as a historian, I really struggle to explain and to understand. Right. Um, I mean, how do you have a society that does both of those things? Right. That is one of the most horrible and... Um, least responsive to the basic concept of human rights on the day-to-day, but in the long term is the most inclusive of any that we know in antiquity. That is fascinating, yeah. I think that was really well expressed. Yeah, It's the the dilemma of the Pax Augusta, right? Everywhere is peaceful, sort of, but it's at the cost of so much uh, repression. Yeah, and in a society that will eventually extend citizenship to everybody. You know, and and in a state that will eventually end in Constantinople with a whole bunch of people who speak Greek and none who speak Latin. Uh, You know, it's a society that (laughs) completely reinvents itself. Yeah. And yet, it's an incredibly conservative society on the day-to-day. And that's a Mm -hmm. dynamic that is really, really hard to explain. You know, it's something we can recognize. When you solve that question, right, and you write that book... (laughs) We'll have you back and you can share the answer <laughs> with the audience. How exactly did this work? I didn't mean to cut you off. Are you ready for the million dollar question? Sure. Yeah. All right. So do you want to draw any parallels between 21st century American politics? Uh, we have a pretty diverse audience, probably people on the right, people on the left, maybe everybody in between. But this is what they want to know. Is America heading toward uh, its own mortal republic condition? Is Jeff Bezos our Crassus? Right. Yeah. <laughs> or Elon Musk or someone yes. like that. Yes. Oh, that's wonderful. Um, I, I think that I'm a lot more concerned about the trajectory that, we're, that we have right now than I was when I wrote the book in you know, 2017, 2018. Wow. Um, I think that the last couple of years have shown the willingness to use violence uh, is something that isn't abstract now. And I think the place where you cannot go back from is when people start dying for one or the other side of this, these political discussions in a republic. Because once you ask somebody to die for a political cause, you basically have to go back on that request and you have to go back on the sacrifice they made if you're going to compromise. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was that's something that I think Rome shows us. Once you have martyrs, you have a sense of a, a kind of fixed position. And it's very hard for society to come back together once you have people who have given their life for something. Um, that's an absolute sacrifice. And to compromise uh, a position that someone made that absolute sacrifice for is very, very difficult and probably fatal to the people who, who, who do it. Um, and so I think that's maybe the one thing that that we as a society need to really figure out how to pull back from is this this mm. tendency towards political violence. Um, I don't think we've we've quite gotten to the point where, say, Rome was in the 130s or 120s, where you did have martyrs for an absolutist populist cause that 
wasn't coherent, right? It just was a sort of idea, mm-hmm. set of ideas and people died for them. Large numbers of people died for them. Um, and we're not there, but we need to be very careful that we don't get there. Uh, because then it's very, very hard to pull back, especially when those ideas are abstract. Mm, that's really well said. I hadn't realized about the consequences of what do you do with the memory and the sacrifice that a person has made for a political cause in order to say that it was the wrong decision. You're basically negating whatever courage and heroism principled stand they took, which I guess is necessary to put that part of your history, you know, at peace and go on to something else. Jeff, did you have any uh, last minute questions for our guest? I have many more questions, but I think up against the clock, that very kind of, haunting note is a as i think is a good place to to leave this a very yeah. in, intriguing but haunting note right yeah so thank you so much ed for joining us we're yeah, just we thrilled really, that you made the time to be really with us appreciate it thank absolutely you it's really my pleasure and I, I hope we can do this again all right jeff we got to get out of here yes we do but before we go we have to talk about these three signed copies of uh, mr watt's book mortal republic we have to give away yes the publisher sent us these three beautiful copies each signed by dr watts so check out our social media check out instagram facebook and you could score yourself one of these excellent um time to go uh thanks to our engineer mishka as always uh thanks to our fine musicians ken tamplin and scott van zen that's their names uh, yeah who do the wonderful uh bumper music for the podcast you want to tell us a little bit about the moss method oh yeah if you want to study some greek you can go to mossmethod.com, check out my program just about every week. I'm very grateful. We have some people checking out what we're doing. I can take you from neophyte, just yeah. a new shoot, that's a Greek word, to erudite, that's a Latin word. So you come along, you get uh, self-paced, accessible, and expert Greek instruction that's also affordable. So mossmethod.com, check it out. Jeff, why do we have to get out of here, by the way? Well, unfortunately, we have to get out of here because the uh, the Arhythmic Gymnastics Club needs use of the vom- vomitorium. Uh, Did you say the Arhythmic Gymnastics Club? <laughs> exactly right. They get everything out of step. Uh, I got you two words for you, a wide berth. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, the Arhythmic Gymnastics Club is knocking on the door. I hear them coming in- down the stairs intermittently. Right now. <laughs> <laughs> you hear them falling down the stairs as we speak. So listeners, subscribe, please. Leave us a review at Spotify or Apple iTunes, someplace like that. And what's on the agenda for next week, Jeff? Next week we're talking about Eumaeus. We're talking. We're going to get into books twelve through fourteen of the Odyssey, back into our Odyssey series, and um, more pigs. More pigs. Way more pigs. Eumaeus, right? the swine herd. Right. So if you thought like the back streets of Rome were stinky, try hanging out with Eumaeus for a while. <laughs> <laughs> and Dave, I think you got the gustatory parting shot. I do. This comes from George Miller, and I have to confess, audience, I know nothing about this man other than that he gave us this great quote. He, I love George Miller. <laughs> Here it comes. The trouble with eating Italian is that five or six days later, you're hungry again. <laughs> Thanks for listening. Thank you.